0: To the MWC Church podcast. MWC Church is a place where you can belong, believe, and become the person God's created you to be. Thanks for joining us online. Hey, let me ask you this question How many of you know that it's much easier to start something than it is to finish? Am I the only one that that understands that reality? Like it's it's so much easier to start something than it is to finish. Um, I'll give you an example in my in my personal life. Um, so so my wife and I we have this dream. We're we're both from, from Chicago. We have this dream of being like incredible vegetable gardeners. Like, like we have this dream that I come home from the office and I and I you know I take off my office pants and I put on my farmer pants because um, they're different. They're not as skinny. Um, I put on a straw hat, and I go out there with a long piece of straw, and I'm just picking cucumbers and tomatoes, right? Uh, two years ago, I built a vegetable garden bed, like a raised bed, it was, it's awesome. And uh, to this date, I started off strong. I I got the blueprints off of Pinterest, where all great builders go, and uh, I I put it together, and, I, and it was awesome. I, I bought a, a radial saw, and I and I bought like a, an impact drill driver, and it just I, I got the tools, and I and I was so excited about this, and I put it together two years ago, and to this day, it's just propped up against my garage. <laughs> it's much easier to start things than it is to, to finish them. Right, like, like how many, how many of you still let's just, let's just shame the devil and tell the truth? How many of you still have those essential oils from that multi-level marketing uh, business that you started, and then they're just sitting in your in your basement, right? Like, like we've been there. Some of you still got Tupperware from like the '80s. Like, like it's easier to start things than it is to finish them. Unfinished house projects. You still have that bathroom that you haven't been able to use for two years because you're working on it. Right. And it's not, it's not just like the, the, these remedial things. It's, it's also like, like, I mean, there, there's unfinished degrees, right? There, there, there's, there's these things that, that we, we set out to do, and we have great intentions, and, and then it, it ends up becoming much more difficult to complete. Something, as, something like a, a marathon. When I uh, f- was in fifth grade, I had a, a friend who, who saw that I was fast, and he's like, hey, you should, you should join our, our park Rex cross-country team. And I'm like, oh, that sounds fun, you know. Yeah, he, uh, but but I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of running unless there's a purpose. Like, if I'm running from someone, then I'll run, and if I'm running with a the ball, then I'll run. But if I'm just running to run, it's not, I'm not a fan of that. Like, I want to play, play sports, and he just beat me up. He's like, cross-country is a real sport. Anyway, he's like, there, there's pizza at the finish line. I'm like, I'm there. All right, let's go. So fifth grade self, sign up for for cross country. Didn't train a day in my life. I played soccer. I played baseball. I played sports. So um, so get to the the starting line, and I have no idea what I'm doing. The guy's like, ready, set, go, and he shoots the gun, and everybody just ducks because it's just inner city Chicago, and everybody's on the floor. It's like, no, that's the starting. So so we we get up, and we all start running, and I'm sprinting. And, And I was pretty fast, you know. I was keyword, and I'm sprinting, and I'm just sprinting, and I'm beating everybody, and I'm looking behind me, I'm like, I'm going to win this race, and then I didn't know it was like a five-mile race or whatever, how long it was, and I end up coming in uh, second to last. Yeah, uh, I, beat, I beat this, this, this one kid, uh, I forget his real name, but we used to call him Chub Chub, and uh, I beat him, so I was the man, I was the man on the block. It's much easier to start things than it is to finish them. We've been there, we feel that. But can I say this, when we look at the mission of Jesus, when we see how he started his race and how he completed it, there is no inconsistency with the amount of strength and focus from the starting point to the finish line. Jesus ran his race. He he accomplished his mission with the same poise, the same tact, the same, dare I say, tenacity as The way he started. In one way that we see this, one way that that we can truly believe that this is the reality is if you look at the the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, every single one of them were completing the race with the same strength that he started. On the cross, Jesus is famous for or known for saying these seven statements or these seven sayings My goal for us for the next couple of weeks until Easter, and yes, we should celebrate the resurrection, but I believe the resurrection becomes much more vibrant when we hold it in contrast to the cross. We're going to spend some time looking and digging in to the words of Jesus upon the cross. And if you ever look through the gospels, we see that there are three sayings in the gospel of Luke, three sayings in the gospel of John, and then Matthew and Mark also bring, they share one together. So there's a total of seven sayings. Now, the cool thing is that every single gospel account, especially the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they say John is, is a little different, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they, they look similar. So they call them the synoptic gospels. Matthew Mark, and Luke all record the times where Jesus was professing the reality of his death. Can, can I just say this? There is not one thing that distracted Christ from his mission. Some of, our, some of us are asking, well, what, what's the mission of Jesus? If you were to summarize the mission of Jesus, if he were to summarize the mission that he had when he walked this earth, we could find it in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says this, For the Son of Man came. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. All right, we're going to see this quite a bit. The Son of Man, it's, David would use this in in, in the Psalms prophesying about Christ, uh, Jesus, the Messiah. So he's talking about himself. Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek, meaning literally to, to find and dust off something treasured, But once he found it, he didn't just say, I found it, and he set it back down. It's to seek and to save, to carry with him, to seek and to save the lost. This is the mission of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, when Christ came in the form of an infant, in the form of a baby, his mission was the same, to seek and to save the lost. There was not one point in Jesus's ministry where he's like, you know what would be a great idea? if I sought after and saved the lost. No, day one, he understood what his mission was. He knew what he was called to do. In fact, even Luke chapter nine, verse 51 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Where was Jerusalem? It was the city of kings, but it was also the city where our king would be crucified. Jesus knew his mission from day one. And he knew that it would cost him his life, You know, there was not one point during Jesus's ministry that caught him by surprise. In fact, if you ever study the Gospels, we see that Jesus was already kind of alluding to the reality that he would suffer on the cross and die. You know, it it wasn't one of those things where Jesus was like, hey, maybe we should stay away from Jerusalem because chances are they're going to kill me here. No, he, he understood from day one what he was meant to do. And we see him profess this to his disciples, not once, not twice, but three times in the gospels where he's foretelling of his own death. I want to read every single one of these instances so that we can kind of see how Jesus is is alluding to his disciples what is to come. So, the first foretelling of his death, every gospel account has this Matthew 16 has it, Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9. But we're going to read Mark's account of this. Mark chapter 8, look what it says. And Jesus, or, and he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Okay that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and be killed. He's telling of everybody, listen, the message that I'm proclaiming, people are going to reject it, and not just people, but the elders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they will reject me and the message and likely you, and I'm going to be killed for it. But don't worry, after three days, I will rise again. Look what verse 32 says. Mark is very detailed here. And he said this plainly. Some of us think like Jesus was Confucius, like, hmm, just very mysterious, right? Like, no, he was absolutely, absolutely plain with his foretelling. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're gonna reject me. I'm gonna get crucified. I will die. But I will rise again in three days. And he said this plainly. Now, Peter, Peter was a, a great guy. He, he, was, he was probably overzealous. He was, he was the leader of the 12. He was probably the, the, the captain, right? Jesus was the coach. Peter was the captain. He probably pulls Jesus aside. He's like, hey, Jesus, listen, let's, let's talk about this. This is not really good for, for your marketing campaign. Let's, let's not talk about that part. And, he, and he's telling Jesus, he's rebuking him. And he's like, uh, Jesus, don't, don't do this. He, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, and every good Jewish person understood that the Messiah would be the person who would bring deliverance to Israel. Now, at the time, Israel was held captive by Rome, and Peter's... Translation of what the Messiah would do is is to deliver them from the clutches, from the grasp of of Rome and that that they would install Jesus to be king over all the world. Like Israel would rule over all the world and and, and Peter's trying to push Jesus towards his vision and his mission and, and Jesus is like, listen, you're not following my vision. You're following the vision of Satan because anything that is contrary to the plans of God is demonic. I know what I'm called to do. I know my mission, Peter. A second time we see him foretelling of his death. This is a chapter later, Mark chapter nine. It's also in Matthew 17 and Luke chapter nine, but in Mark nine, it says this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, here we go again, ready? The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying, comma, and were afraid to ask. Now, we may think that maybe Jesus was being a little more mysterious here, but, but I believe the reason why they didn't understand the saying is because they were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask because they were afraid to hear the truth. That the, the, the idea of Jesus dying and leaving That being the end of his mission did not fit with the paradigm that they wanted to squeeze Jesus into. So they were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to hear the truth, but Jesus told them the truth. In fact, he'll do it a third time in Matthew chapter 20, also in in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. But Matthew 20, I wanna read this account. It gives a little more detail than Mark and Luke's account, but it says this. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, so now this is his final trip towards Jerusalem and he will not leave Jerusalem. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. It's like Jesus was was like, look at guys, here we are. I, I told you not once, not twice, but now a third time we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now Jesus is adding a little bit more information. It's not just the the scribes that are gonna kill me, but but they're gonna hand me over to the Gentiles. Anybody who's not a Jew is considered a Gentile. Uh, Essentially, he's saying, they're gonna hand me over to Rome to be mocked, to be flogged, and crucified. Jesus is telling them already, they're gonna tie me up, they're gonna flog me. They're gonna crucify me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. But I, the son of man, will be raised on the third day. He's telling them plainly what is to unfold. Friends, Jesus understood his mission. It never was something that fell to the peripherals of life. That passage we read earlier, that that he set his face towards Jerusalem, essentially means that he would not turn from the left or to the right. He was focused on the mission that God had given him. And what was that mission again? To seek and to save that which was lost. And friends, it could only happen through the cross. Jesus started and finished his race with the same amount of strength You see, Jesus understood that the price for our life, the cost that it would cost him to give us life would be the price of his. Jesus understood that the price for your life, friend, would cost him his. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verse verse two, he says it this way, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Philippians 2.8, Paul says it this way, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you know this? 750 years before Jesus even came onto the scene and in, in his bodily self, the pre-incarnate Christ was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, 750 years. Look at, I mean, if you, if, if you ever want to just have your, your brain just like explode at, at, at just like the goodness of God, go read Isaiah chapter 53. The entire chapter is all about the suffering servant. It's all about Jesus. And the details that we see in Isaiah 53, it is just incredible that we see that fulfilled in the Gospels, 750 years before. But I wanna read this, this one passage, verse four and five. Look what it says about Jesus, the suffering servant. It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. There's people who stared at Christ when he was on the cross and said, see, this is the punishment that he deserved. But verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. He knew his mission. He knew why he was here. He never lost sight you know what else is i i find interesting is that not only did Jesus understand the mission, the, the cost that it would it would require in order to bring us salvation, but he also sees you as part of the mission as you are now. Like, like Jesus, this is how much I love God. This is what I love about the grace of God. The grace of God is not just a, a get out of hell free card. Like, like when you get saved, he doesn't give you a voucher and says, all right, now we'll never see you in hell. See you later. Uh, no, his desire is, is to, yes, give us salvation. Yes, give us eternal life. But did you know from, from now until the, then his hope and his ambition for us is to daily refine us into the image of Christ. Like like nobody in here, although you are saved, are perfected. You're not perfect, right? Like how many of you, even though after you're saved, still have a moment where you sin? Right? So so there is a process that we find ourselves on. Philippians 1 6, I love it this way. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So if you look in the mirror and you're just in the mirror and you're just like, you know what? I'm thankful that I've been saved, but, but I, I don't like what I see. Well, don't worry, neither does Jesus, which is why he's working with you every single day. And that's not something we should run from. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines or refines those that He loves. So we're all on process, we're all in mission. The big idea is this, Jesus did not give up, he did not ease off, he did not compromise, he did not lose sight of his great mission of bringing us life, not even when things got rough. Jesus completed his mission with the same strength and focus in which he started. So what, what, what is, what is the, the emphasis? As we look at these, at these final words on the cross, my prayer, my hope is that we would see that Christ, our savior, that this season of Lent that we find ourselves, that we would see his faithfulness. So let's go ahead and read in Luke chapter 23. I want us to just look at the first statement of Christ. It's in Luke 23, verses 32 to 38. The Bible says, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, here's the first statement, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the, old, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they had offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They were offering him some wine to alleviate the pain, kind of numb the pain, and Jesus would not drink from it. And then there was a notice, a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. A sign that it was intended to be passive aggressive actually ends up being ironic because it is the exact title with which he bears. This is the King of the Jews. But the first statement that we see is this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I want to break that up into two, and I want us to look at that first part. Father, forgive them. Do you ever ask yourself, who is Jesus truly forgiving here? Because if we were to just look at the context of the story, the context of the narrative, we see multiple characters at play, right? Like, like, like what just happened a couple chapters ago? Well, we know that Judas sold Jesus to the high priest for thirty pieces of silver, which would have been like the equivalent of six hundred dollars today, like literally five weeks' wages at that time. He's like, um, yeah, let me let me just go ahead and give you and give you Jesus. Was Jesus forgiving Judas there, or or maybe he was forgiving Peter? The the closest disciple who pulled Jesus aside and even rebuked him and was like, Jesus, you're not going to die. This is not what's going to happen. We love you. I will stick with you through thick and thin. I will never betray you. And yet what does Peter do? Denies him three times. Was Jesus forgiving Peter? Or how about the other disciples who all ran away? One guy, the Bible records that, even in the garden as, as they were about to seize him, where, where Jesus was back, was against the wall, where he needed his people, like he needed his squad to come alongside him. There was one guy where a, 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 one of the police officers grabbed his cloak and the guy just like did some jujitsu and got out of there and ran out naked. Like the Bible records this. Was Jesus forgiving that guy who just like left him? Or how, how about, how about the, the individuals that... Um, denied ever knowing him, or or how about the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers who were presenting false accusations, or what about the the priest that that ripped his beard and spat in his face? How about Pontius Pilate, the the Roman governor who's supposed to stand for justice as a representative of, of, of all authority, and yet instead of bringing justice to Jesus, an innocent victim, chose to pander to the voices of the masses and bring accusation against an innocent man. Was Jesus forgiving him when he said, Father, forgive them? Or what about the soldiers that beat him and spat on him and mocked him and put on the crown of thorns and drove that into his head? How about the soldier that stripped him naked, tearing every scab on his back from the flogging? who is he forgiving here when he said, Father, forgive them? Was it the soldier that pierced his side or the ones that were hurling insults, disapprovingly looking from the distance? You know what the answer is in the context of this passage? The answer is yes. As Jesus was hanging on that cross, brutally beaten. In fact, even Isaiah says that, that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. He was so disfigured. Like some of us, when we watch the film Passion of the Christ, we have to look away because it's, it's, it's too grotesque for us, but the Bible says that, it, that, that that wasn't even close to the depiction of what we saw. And what is Jesus? As he's gasping for air, the first thing that he says as he's feeling the excruciating pain of, yes, the nails, but of our sin, what does he say? Father, forgive them. I believe the Lord's desire for us this morning is just to look at these four insights that he revealed to me as as I was just praying and reading through this, but but four insights that I want us to see and consider from Jesus' first saying on the cross, "Of Father, forgive them. The first one is this. Jesus interceded, you ready for this? For you. The Bible says that it is our sin that placed him there, that God allowed him, being Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There was a, a, a kind of a transaction that was happening where, where Christ took upon every single one of your sinful actions. Now listen, you may feel like a good person from day to day, and you may be able to compare yourself to someone else or your brother-in-law or a sister-in-law or, or your neighbor and be like, at least I'm better than that person. But when you compare yourself to the holy, righteous standard of God, listen, we all fall short. There is not one person. I don't care if you say you've been a Christian your entire life. like You only remember going to church. Listen, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is nothing good in us. There is nothing that, that allows us to even come close to the gates of heaven. We would have all fallen short unless Jesus stood up and said, I will take their place. I will take upon their sins upon my shoulders. If that transaction never happened, you and I, would be dead. And what does Jesus say? Listen, who is he forgiving? Who is he going to the Father, saying, Father, forgive them? Jesus interceded for you during his greatest time of need. Let's just get theological for a moment. Jesus is 100% man, man, and 100% God. He's not 50-50. He's not like like my kids, half Mexican, half whatever Katie is. He's 100% man, and 100% God. However, the Bible's clear, that he did not allow his divinity to keep him from feeling the pain and suffering that is common to us all. Jesus understood the pain of abandonment. He understood the pain of loss, the pain of sorrow, hunger, fatigue. He understood temptation, yet he did not sin. And you know what? He wasn't dipping into his divine nature to have him overcome, overcome that. He set that aside, taking on the form of us, but he overcame all of that for you and I. So that when he would offer himself up as a sacrifice, he would be the pure and spotless lamb. So when he was on the cross, listen, in his lowest point, greatest suffering, greatest sorrow, everyone abandoned him. Just yesterday, I had a conversation with a girl who came to our church, and she was just she just sat in a corner, service dismissed, and God did some awesome stuff Saturday night, but, but she sat there, she didn't leave, so I just went up to her and I said, Hey, what's going on? And she's like, Pastor, where is that God that you told me would show up in my situation? Where is that God? And she was going through pain and suffering, and she lost her father a couple years ago, lost her mother last year. Her family moved away, she was completely abandoned, had nobody. The family that she did have does have in town keeps her at a distance. She has no one. She lost her job. she's like, "Where is that God?" I put my arm around her and I said, "Well, I know you feel like he, he's not around at, at this point, but, but can, can I just say,, can I tell you this? The same abandonment you understand he's, he's, he's felt. He knows what it means to have brothers and sisters betray him and deny him and friends walk out on him and and people to leave him and spit on, like, like I, I don't know where he is at this moment, but I promise he's near to those who are brokenhearted. But he, he identifies with your suffering. We don't serve a God who says, come up to my standard. He, he comes to, to ours and brings us to him. Amen. And in Jesus's weakest moment, he said, he interceded for us. Those of you who know me know I'm a, I'm a nerd. Uh, I enjoy going to museums. And just like, there's two speeds when my family goes to museums. There's Steve's speed, and then there's like Katie's speed. Katie's like, everything's cute, everything's awesome, and just runs through everything, and she, she's done in an hour. But when I go, I'm like, I'm like reading every plaque. And, and now we're getting in this phase where like my three-year-olds don't want to read every plaque with daddy anymore. Like it was fun for a while, but now they don't, they don't want that anymore. So, so I, I have to like, kind of go fast, but we went to the museum. This is before kids. We went to the museum of uh, like a, a Titanic history museum in Branson, Missouri. You can check it out. It's pretty cool. And uh, there was a story that I remember reading uh, about a, a mother who, she's, she's unidentified, but a story of a mom who, as the Titanic began to sink, um, the lifeboats weren't prepared and, and they couldn't find one. This mother was a, a very proficient swimmer. She had two young children So she goes into the frigid waters. It was about 28 degrees. And by the way, 28 degrees uh, water, uh, within 15 minutes, hypothermia sets in. And in about 30 minutes, death. She was able to tread water for the four hours. And she would prop up her children who lived and she didn't. Now, I mean, if, if you ever study this individual's life, they, they said that she was an excellent swimmer. I mean, just to do that, to tread water for four hours, and I mean, an excellent swimmer. But the reason why she died was not out of you know uh, hypothermia. They say she didn't die from hypothermia. She didn't die from drowning. She died from exhaustion. That she propped up her children and... and as I, as I think and recall that story, I'm reminded that Jesus, our Savior, propped us up. He died for us. Amen. A second insight is this. Jesus could have called for vengeance, but instead, he cried for your deliverance. Jesus could have called for vengeance, but instead, he cried for your deliverance you guys remember the story when Jesus was in the garden and uh, he was getting arrested and, and Peter pulls out a sword, like just shing, and he slices off Malachus's ear. And I promise you, he wasn't going for the ear, but he got the ear and Jesus like does a magic trick and just attaches it, right? Really cool story. But There's something that Jesus tells Peter and he says, Peter, don't you know that at any like Listen, Peter, I, I don't need you to fight these battles for me. Don't you know that at any moment's notice, I can just call out to my Father and that he would send thousands of his angels to come and protect me? Like, I have the authority to do that. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he could have called fire from heaven. He could have called bears from the woods. He, he could have done some crazy things that like Hollywood would have been like, oh, that's amazing. Like Michael Bay would have been turned to shame with what the things Jesus could have done. But instead of calling for vengeance when we were deserving of it, when we were sacrificing the darling of heaven, instead of calling for vengeance, he cries out for your deliverance. Father, forgive them. It's prophesied, even in the Old Testament, that he would do this. Verse 12, he says, he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the sinners. He prayed for us. You know what I find interesting? Do you remember that portion in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard it said to, you know, like no longer hang out with your enemies, but I tell you to to love your enemies, to pray for them. How many of you, if we're going to be honest, when you hear that, you're just like, oh, that's, that's cute, Jesus, but that's like for super Christians, not, not for us like ones that are just trying to get by, right? Like, like I, I don't have to love my enemies. I don't have to pray. I, like, I can like them as long as I don't murder them because that, that, that's, that's like the bare minimum of Christianity. As long as I don't murder them, I'll be all right. No. When Jesus said to, to love your enemies and pray for them, did you know he practiced what he preached? We were his enemies, friends. We weren't like dirty kids in the the backyard who were like, oh, go get washed. No, we were his enemies. We murdered him. And he prayed for us. He practiced what he preached. The third observation is this. God's forgiveness is based on Jesus's obedience and your acceptance. Like, what did you do to deserve that pardon from the cross? Nothing. You did nothing to deserve that pardon. We did not, I did nothing. There was not a tinge of remorse in my heart as Christ was hanging on that cross. I did nothing to deserve that pardon and yet he gave it. Now, I want, to be, I want to be super clear because some have falsely fallen into this theology, this, 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 this false teaching of universalism that says Christ has saved the entire world through this one pardon. And while I would say, I, let, let me just read this. I don't, want, I don't want to botch this. I wrote this down. There's been a confusing teaching that comes up from this portion of Scripture that have caused some to wrongfully assume universalism or the idea that this statement was Jesus' parting all of humanity from sin. And while I would say, in a sense, that Jesus' action, and certainly his prayer here, is certainly enough to pardon the entire world of sin, it's enough to pardon us of all sin, it is conditioned on our faith to accept it. So you and I, friends, God's forgiveness is based on Jesus' obedience. He, he would thank you, Jesus. But it's also based on our acceptance. I mean, if, if we were going to break up the ratios, the percentages, it's 99.9% Jesus and 1.1% of me just saying yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen. Hebrews 12, 9, 10 says it this way. What do we see? We see Jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, meaning he, he took on the position of man. He came to us. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Who does God desire to be saved? Everyone. But look what it says here. God for whom and through whom everything was made chose to bring many children into glory. Look at the the contrast. Everyone to many. Did Jesus pardon all people? Yes. But that pardoning needs to be accepted. And my prayer is that this morning you would all make this decision, which brings us to our fourth observation. It's this. God's forgiveness is good. God's forgiveness is good. It's once and for all. Listen, I'm not saying you got to get saved again. Like, Remember, remember those days where you were getting saved every week? Like you go back to your like your, 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 your Christian baby book and you're like, I got saved this day and then you got saved next week and the next week and the next week and you've been getting saved every single day since then. Can I just say this? His salvation, the acceptance of what Christ has done is powerful for once and for all. But here's the beautiful thing, it's also renewable. You can, you can fall to your knees and say, Jesus, I, I need this fresh again. 1 John chapter 1 9 says this, if we confess our sins, and by the way, John is writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers here. If we confess our sins, so John is already saying, you're likely going to sin, human who gave their life to Jesus. If we confess our sins, but we don't justify our sin. He says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus who brings, who please our, our, our cause on his behalf. Lamentations 3, and 23 says it this way. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You ever notice how the world is on a cycle? The sun rises, the sun sets seasons come and seasons go 365 days in a year 24 hours in a day 60 minutes in an hour 60 seconds in a minute and it repeats and it repeats and it repeats i believe the reason why our god in heaven created the world to be this cyclical event is because he wants us to understand something his mercies renew each morning listen you may have dragged yourself to church this morning Saying, Pastor, you don't know the things I did yesterday or last week. His desire is not to condemn you or to stamp the rubber stamp of guilt over your life. His aspiration, his hope is that you would walk in the truth, the reality, the victory of Jesus. That you would recall the the fact that as he hung on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. He also said, for they do not know what they do. Let me just be really clear here. We knew what we were doing. Jesus wasn't saying that we were ignorant of the vile actions. We didn't just accidentally crucify him. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to pin a tail on a donkey. Oops, Jesus, I got your hands. Like, no. We knew what we were doing. The Romans, the, 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 the Jews, they knew what they were doing. They were crucifying an innocent man. They all understood. They, we, we knew the penalty of our sin. But when he says they do not know what they are doing, they said they do not understand the significance of the one they are crucifying. They don't understand that this is the Son of God, but it must happen this way so that they can be saved. Friends, as we work our way to Easter, can we hold up the reality of the cross to the glory of the resurrection? He died for you, friend. He didn't just die for me. He died for us all. Can we stand in this place? And I just want to, I want us to honor the Lord and have a moment where we respond to this beautiful reality that he was crushed for our sins. He poured himself out for us. that while Jesus was in his most vulnerable place, he was thinking of delivering us. When he could have called out for vengeance, he cried for our deliverance. This Jesus, he offers us forgiveness based on his obedience, not on our actions, but on his obedience. And all we need to do is accept turn away from ourselves, repent, and turn towards him to just accept what he has done. Romans ten nine tells us that if, if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess And are saved. As scriptures say, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So I just want to ask a question. If there's anybody in this room that would honestly say, you know what, Pastor? I know it was my sin that put him there. I'm sick of justifying myself and saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. I I know any amount of sin was enough to cause his crucifixion. It was me that put him there. I'm sick of trying to put lipstick on a pig and trying to put a veneer over my sin. I I, I need to deal with this because Jesus dealt with this 2,000 years ago. And I want to accept the work he accomplished for me. If that's your prayer, every eye closed, can we just close our eyes and bow our head and just soften our hearts before the Lord at this moment? He's speaking to us. If that's your desire to accept the work of Jesus for the first time, would you go ahead and raise your hand? Any other hands? Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, if you would say, you know what, Pastor, I've I've accepted Jesus, but I want to I just want to soften my heart, renew myself before the Lord. I want to accept Him anew. I recognize what He's done in my life, and I want to continue to recognize that. If that's your desire, would you just lift up your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can we all just, as a sign of honor, just raise up our hands as we pray this prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for all that you've done for me. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you knew your mission. Thank you that you never turned to the left or to the right, but that you always marched Towards Calvary, towards the cross. Father, in the same way that you prayed forgiveness for us, may you help us to give forgiveness to others. Because you have set the standard, because you have been the example, may we now freely give forgiveness to others. And we also pray, Jesus, that ultimately we would be recipients of your forgiveness, of your pardoning. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And if you are thankful for the work of Jesus, will you give him praise this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the simple truth, the simple gospel. Oh, guys. God is good. I love you guys so much. We're working our way to Easter. We're comparing and we're holding the contrast of the cross to the resurrection of our Savior. Guys, I please bring friends next week. We're going to talk more about the sayings of Jesus on the cross. He loves us. He's forgiven us. Now let us walk with the renewed victory that we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll see you guys work day next week. Don't forget church community builder. And if you're new, connect card. We'd love to meet you at the back of the welcome center. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Take care.